Are We There Yet? Transport into the Future. This is a series of programs that look at current issues and developments and what they mean for the transport we need, we want and what we can supply in the future. These programs are written and presented by David Brown. If a government, a private company or the community wants to build more transport infrastructure or change a policy or an operating system, how can we evaluate the real consequences, the true worth of going ahead? We have been computer modelling the transport network for a long time now. No model is perfect, but are we getting better in this changing world? And getting better is not just trying to perfect the way we have always done it. In order to have a manageable model, we have often zeroed in on specific tasks, such as the journey to work in the morning peak. We have also assumed that people make logical choices based only on time, cost and distance, and we have measured the impact by how well we get vehicles to flow on the road or public transport to run. Our models are also contained in that they usually don't allow for people to move out of the peak periods we are analysing, and while we change the land use, the activities that generate trips, according to our desired plan, we often don't consider how the transport system may impact where jobs, schools, shops and other activities will spring up, and the modelling usually takes a long time. The Institute of Transport and Logistics Studies at Sydney University has developed and run their own model with a different approach. This broadcast is not a workshop on the intricacies of using the model, but rather why did it come about, what is it broadly trying to do, and what is it leading to in the future. Professor David Hensher is the founder and director of the Institute and has had a very hands-on role in this project. David, thank you very much for your time. It's a pleasure to be here, David. Now, talking about the model, you're not condemning the previous ones, are you? It's just that it's an evolution that we've got to go through? I think that's right. It is an evolution, and we've been doing this stuff for over 60 years now, and it's been rather slow in coming up with what I would regard as behaviourally more appropriate ways of looking at the question, what is the best spend in terms of infrastructure improvement or service changes to our entire system, not just roads, but public transport. So what we've been doing, and if I could just tell you the motivation for doing this, because I think that's interesting, is that for many years, consultants were asked by government in the main to evaluate uh, two or three pre-chosen projects of which the decision was that one of them will be built or delivered in some form. Therein lies a problem. It's known as how do you actually identify the candidate set of real possibilities that might make a difference to the way in which our cities grow and provide well-being and livability, etc., that we all aspire to want to be part thereof. And so I've had some frustration for many years that instead of predetermining a few projects, and often they're the pet projects of politicians, like it will be a light rail or it'll be a heavy rail or it might be a road, why not ask a broader question, can we develop a framework in which we can throw in, in a systematic way, lots of possible projects, programs, policies that may identify other ways in which we could get a better spend from the scarce tax dollar that the taxpayer essentially contributes to. In other words, there must be a better way of narrowing down the set of projects that we want to seriously evaluate 
than just simply what I would describe as a bit of a, a favorites list. That's often the case. And then what happens, the favorites list is maybe two or three projects to evaluate. Often it's the one project with two variations, like two different alignments of a road or two different alignments of a rail track, for example. And then we hire a consultant for, say, three years on a huge sum of money to do a major evaluation of the very limited set of options instead of finding a mechanism by which we can very quickly evaluate many, many possibilities to narrow down to the ones that could really make a difference on demand, on benefit, and on cost. What we have done at the University of Sydney over the last 10 to 15 years is develop such a framework, which we call MetroScan. And it's called MetroScan because it's a way in which we can scan very, very quickly literally hundreds of possible ways in which we could improve the performance of our transport system, but do it at a level of detail where it may not be necessary to do anything more than that in providing an evaluation outcome that could be used to determine whether that project is one worth supporting. Then we go into the design phase. There's been an edifice attitude to it, hasn't it? And you think that we're solving the whole problem by building one big project, yet it's a very narrow uh, result in many ways. It might be successful in that area, but it is a very narrow result. Absolutely. And I think one of the things that is a bit of a challenge with us is the recognition that it's apparently it's better to build than to make better use of what we've already got. And of course, we can do a lot more with the infrastructure. We have a pretty big rail network. It's government's been changing service frequencies, has been reviewing the fears. It's not been doing a bad job, but I have to say in Sydney that the success of public transport has created a huge crowding problem no matter what government does. And so we may need to look to new new infrastructure investment. But we need to do in that in parallel in defining how we measure the service level, how we price it. What One of my favourite topics is actually road pricing, which means identifying a better way of recognising that if there is congestion, those who contribute towards it should pay for it. Now, if I could go back to my model, uh, and uh, I have to talk a little bit more about other aspects of MetroScan, because it's consistent with your introduction, David, and that is that in this day and age, we need to have a better understanding of the relationship between land use responses and transportation decisions, and in particular, how users and potential users that are not only passengers, but also freight owners and distributors would respond to different options into the system. The existing transport planning modeling, first of all, in the main ignores the freight sector and where it focuses on passengers, it has a very narrow set of possible ways in which we can understand what I call behavioral response if you make a change to the system. For example, it's essentially driven by you build a new road, you change service levels on a particular mode, and the best you'll get is what impact that will have on the mode people would use, the destination they would go to, and maybe how frequency they travel. But Land use is held fixed. We know that there should be feedback effects. If, in fact, you improve accessibility to a particular location, then there'll be a major change over time in in where people live, where they work, where organizations are located. Furthermore, there are two other very important behavioral responses that have been ignored today that we need to capture in our planning tools. One is when you introduce an improvement in the system, often people want to stay with their mode of transport. They don't want to switch and they want to just change the time of day in which they travel. 
And as congestion gets worse on the roads, we need to recognise that many people's coping responses is to switch the time of day they travel. The good news is more and more organisations are giving people the flexibility of when they begin work and when they finish. So the whole change of patterns of work, rather than assuming everybody has to begin at nine and finish at five, which is an implicit assumption of the existing models, means that you're going to force people through the models to switch mode when in fact they will switch the time of day they travel by a mode. Some of the things that you're bringing in there is that we're not just making a very logical decision on a very fixed system. We are adapting and, and playing with it. I did a talk back where I talked about, you know, that we judge things on distance, time and cost. And a guy rang in and said, no, no, I like to drive by the beaches. It's an extreme example. It doesn't make the whole story. But it does mean that we are making emotive decisions, not just pure logical ones as well. Totally agree with you, David. And in fact, w one of the great strengths of what we're doing is what we call behavioral realism. Try to identify those factors that really do drive people's decisions on where they work, where they live, when they travel, how often they travel, and what mode they use, for example. And that it's not just a matter of, of looking at the travel time versus the travel cost. There is a whole host of other factors. There are two in particular, though, that have become rather more important in recent years than they were before. And they are crowding in public transport and the reliability of the road network, i.e. congestion. But also a simple preference for people just like driving their car and are willing to sit in it and put up with the traffic because it's their private space. This raises some really interesting questions in this new future. The new future which we're building into Metroscan is linked to the notion of digital disruption. We're now moving into an era with all these fancy apps we have and access to Uber and all these booking systems where down the track we may not own a car and we may just have an app that we press to book a vehicle that will be predetermined to turn up when you want it at a price that's agreeable to you and it doesn't matter what it's called, be it a car, a bus or whatever. Mm. The important thing we've got to understand, though, is how many people really want to move out of the ownership market into the sharing culture. Basically, human beings are pretty mean people in terms of respecting the desire to have their own rights in their own space when they want it. However, owning a car is expensive. And so I think it's very interesting that we need to understand in the future we may not own any form of transport. We may just simply uh, have a subscription plan which gives us access to whatever mode we want to use at whatever time of day we wish to use it. That's an interesting and scary future, but an exciting one because if, if you take the example of everybody no longer owns a car, there would be, uh, but all cars that are on the road network are going to be fully occupied all the time in moving people, we'll need less cars to do the job. What that will mean is that there'll be less congestion. Interesting. What we need to do in the new era of transport planning tools to advise on whether these things are, are worth supporting in terms of building more roads to support this, or maybe we need less, less roads because we don't need as much capacity. Maybe we'll need more buses. Who knows? The point is we need the tools to evaluate them. And we need the tools that can recognize that a big important aspect of the evaluation process is 
what matters to people who wish to travel. The thing about evaluating them too is that we often go through where we have blind statements of faith which direct where the process will go. Oh, public transport should be free or we should toll everything, everywhere, which is an important point. I'm not denying it. But it seems to narrow the approach. Now, you're talking about a model system that you can run very quickly. That's an important point, isn't it? So that we don't have to wait for a huge thing to get an idea, not a total solution, but an idea of where a statement may lead us rather than necessarily come at the end and say, well, yes, it's either good or bad, whatever that means. That's a very good point. We don't want to wait two years for a consultant to come out with a recommendation, which is not not a good recommendation either. Uh, The beauty of Metroscan, and we're fortunate at the University of Sydney that we have access to high-speed computers, in fact, the fastest in Australia, I'm told, is that once we've got all our models working efficiently, if you come to us and say, what might be the situation if we were to build, say, a light rail between A and B, we should be able to, within 40 minutes, and I tell you 40 minutes, do a passenger forecast 30 years out, and then move those forecasts into a benefit-cost analysis, given the costs of providing that system, to come up with a benefit-cost ratio where the benefits relate to the relative advantages in terms of time savings, cost savings, crowding impacts, whatever else is, is a benefit. To be able to do that very quickly and say, yeah, that one looks promising or not, let's look at it in a bit more detail, or no, that's a dud, let's not even go any further, is actually a very good proposition. Hmm. And I'm hoping, maybe after my lifetime, that one day our ministers of transport, our ministers of planning will on their desk have the capability of sitting there and playing what-if games using tools like Metroscan to get a good sense about that one has prospects, that one does not. And more importantly, politically, if you can show that something looks pretty good in terms of people supporting it, that's votes. That's votes. Mm. Yes. But the point about what is deemed to be success there, we've often seen computer modelling in a level of detail, like in the year 2035, there will be 237 vehicles turning right here. What you're saying is getting a feel for it, not just in terms of, oh, there looks like there'll be a lot of people on there, but perhaps even further, what it might mean to the community and the environment and things like that, that we're not just saying, well, there's going to be 22,392 people here, so it must be a good project. You're getting a sense of its broader impact? Absolutely. One of the very important features of Metroscan is that there's a seamless move from forecasts of patronage, including freight, by the way. You mustn't neglect that. Mm. We're the first to have actually integrated both because they, the trucks share the roads with the cars, etc. And anything that happens to the cars impacts on the trucks. And of course, it impacts on public transport if there's an adjustment in the demand for particular modes. Nevertheless, the output of that, those forecasts is a crucial input into a benefit-cost analysis and what we call an economic impact analysis. If I could just briefly describe both of those, a benefit-cost analysis is where you identify all the benefits with and without the project and all the costs with and without the project. And those benefits are not just benefits to users, but the benefits to society in terms of cleaner air better urban amenity and things like that. But on top of that, we want to know to what extent these projects will actually create jobs and will add economic benefit through some measures of GDP growth into the local community. So you need to measure that as well. Some projects, all they do is create a reasonably nice benefit cost, but they don't create jobs and they don't add value to the local 
constituency in terms of income flows. So it's very important we understand that as well because transportation has to be seen as more than simply a tool to move people and goods, but as a tool to support the growth and the livability and the viability and the economic strength of a location. Livability is an interesting concept, isn't it? That and must be hard to measure. It's often used in a vague sense, and it's often justified by an artist's impression where there's going to be this glorious, freshly painted tram or train or what have you going through an area where trees all grow in a nice way and so on. That's a nice image. What one professor talked about planning by nice images. But let's get down to that. Livability in that. How do you incorporate that? How do you involve that in the process? I think it's got to be linked to some other languages now doing the rounds, and that's smart places, not smart cities, smart places. It's very exciting to recognise at the end of the day, transportation has to make a contribution to the place environment. And what I mean by that is it gives you good access in a way that supports access to better schools, to better hospitals, to open space and clean air. And it's very important that we need to recognise that when we're doing the benefit-cost calculation, we aren't just focusing on what, what are normally called the transport user benefits, but we're focusing on the broader set of benefits, which are generally encapsulated in, in the notion of livability. Mm. Does the entire package make sense in terms of where people want to live, where people want to work, and how they want to engage in society? Models used to measure, or still do measure, the average time saving, yet we'll talk about Manly Ring in a minute where an inquiry found that there was huge time savings but it was five minutes for each person which when you multiplied by 100,000 people that looked big that you get home five minutes earlier isn't a change of your lifestyle it's not doing a great benefit yet that average figure made it look very very good it's important that we don't just measure how vehicles travel but what the impact on people and communities is absolutely and and one of the criticisms of much of the cost benefit analysis in recent years in fact going way back is that it's been limited to a dominant measure of a benefit called travel time savings. And all the other effects that we think are important have not been factored in. So we've actually had a huge confoundment with time savings and all these other factors are important. Now what we're doing, we're trying to separate them out and measure them and quantify them and say that in fact, if it's just time savings, it's not really worth it. You've got to be giving some multiplier impact that relates to the benefits to the location. So I don't mind if it's five minutes or it's 10 minutes or whatever. What I do mind about, what does that translate into in terms of land use value, the environment in which you want to bring up your kids, good access to essential facilities? We're talking here, by the way, about cities, right? But in fact, this is becoming an even more important issue when you go into the regional rural areas. Mm -hmm. And so we need to start thinking about what does this all mean in terms of connecting rural regional cities, which is something that New South Wales government is putting far more emphasis on today than it used to be, which is a good thing. And so, for example, if we can get one of my hobby horses at the moment, I must admit, if we can get fast rail from Sydney to some of the key regional centres like Orange and Dubbo, fast rail is not high-speed rail. We're talking about maybe 150 kilometres an hour. It could be a tilt train if the current track can't handle anything faster on a normal train. That will improve access to hospitals and education and specialists, etc., which they currently don't have except for having to dra- travel for many more hours. And that makes the environment in which they live in Orange much more livable. Livability 
is involved with access as much as location. We've often just looked at the journey to work as though a lot of the models have just been about the morning peak and the journey to work, which is a very narrow perspective of the types of reasons you make a trip and when you make a trip and why you make a trip. There's more trips made, I think, for social recreation and, you know, and hospital trips. Your model now gives you a chance to incorporate those sorts of parameters? Absolutely. Um, we now have models where we're understanding the factors that are driving choices on the mode you use, for example, to go shopping, to go to education, to visit friends and relatives, etc. And also, there's an, another market that's been somewhat neglected in the past, and it's employer business. A lot of people are traveling on business, and they're not, that's not going to work because you're not going to your main place of work. And so we need to capture all those different trip purposes and we need to also in look at multiple purpose trips. For example, the commuter goes via the kindergarten to drop the kid off on the way to work and all these sorts of factors, which actually is a big constraint on which mode you use because often it's easier to do that by car than it is by public transport, unless, of course, you can park somewhere convenient after you drop the child off and get the train to work, etc. Mm. But these are really important issues. And so what I think I would like to suggest, David, is that many of the modelling systems that we currently see around, including the ones that are currently being used in New South Wales, have a very limited number of particular behavioural responses that society can be seen to do as a result of any change in the transport system. And it's really your change of mode for your commute your change of destination for your commute, and the frequency of travel in general. That's a very limited set of responses. What about changing the time of day you travel? What about trip chaining with multiple trip purposes? What about changing the, your residential location? What about changing your workplace? What about changing the degree of flexibility you have when you actually start a trip and finish a trip? And even beyond that, when it comes to a lot of the environmental issues, what sort of vehicles do you own? How do you use them? Many of the earlier issues to do with trying to reduce pollution was to try and get people out of their cars. But what we found was the simplest solution was, was to manufacture more energy and environmentally friendly vehicles and let people still carry on with their bad driving habits, but spill out less pollution, less greenhouse gas emissions. And I did a study about 30 years ago where I found no matter how hard you tried to get people to get out of their cars, the two major factors that drove reductions in pollution and greenhouse gas emissions was changing people's work practices and buying more fuel-efficient cars, not changing your mode of transport. In my early part of my career, I met people like Liz Ampt, who was involved in household surveys, mm. which gave a much better idea of what caused you to make those decisions the number of cars in the household and so on. And I met there a, a transport planner who was absolutely fantastic, learnt a great deal, and he made this conclusion, you'll never get public transport to work as well until you can fart in it and uh, not offend anybody. It's an example of how your car can be in your own domain space. Well, I, I have a comment that says you'll never make public transport more attractive unless you make the car less attractive. But things are changing because there are segments of the community, call them the millennials, if you like, who actually don't own a car and are quite happier to use public transport. And more importantly, when they need the car service, they'll just call Uber. So this is an interesting development. It's a new change where there's reprioritizing what matters and spending maybe in their 20s, happy to live in apartments. And it's not until they have kids that they want to then move to suburbia because they need a backyard. 
This is a big change from the baby boomers, for example, who experienced the opportunity to have a car when public transport was somewhat less uh, user-friendly user as it is today. But it's more than just that. It's an attitude now. I see young households who may have had two cars, only owning one, and using Uber if they need it for a second one if the first is not available. That's a huge change. As long as a car solution, which you don't have to own, is available at a competitive price when you want it, I see that just growing and growing and growing. It's a very interesting market, and it's known throughout the world as the mobility as a service market, which is a move from owning to simply using. The interesting thing is that some parameters may change. You talked about the value of time. Well, if you're in a car where you don't have to drive, then the value of time changes significantly. Potentially, not everybody, read or do something. So parameters in models have to take into account, and I, I trust your model can do that sort of thing. We understand the concept. Here's a, a way of incorporating it in getting more informed information to make a decision on. You're absolutely right. In fact, um, I had a meeting this morning with the head of Singapore Land Transport Authority talking about that very issue. If, As we move into autonomous cars into the future, be they owned privately or accessible through a shared model, e.g. an Uber-type model, where there's no driver, you can actually work the best example, of course, in your own car, if you're not driving it, you can have some productive time. The real question is, though, is that time time that would be compared with doing work mm. or undertaking some leisure activity like spending more time in bed? The question I, I really need to put is on the value of travel time savings, David, is that once there's a productivity gain in the vehicle, you don't need to get to work as fast in terms of losing time that normally would be regarded as productive time. However, what you need to do is to recognize that that time can be used productively and hence any opportunity to save time is worth less than it would have otherwise been. Hmm. The best example I could give you is the debate in Britain at the moment on high-speed rail. On high-speed rail in the UK, they're arguing you don't need to go as fast because you can actually do a lot of work on the train and hence, the value of that work can often outweigh the gain in time savings. And fast trains cost a lot in terms of energy and the whole range Absolutely. of things. Absolutely. But it's controversial in the UK because since they want to put these out to an equity investment, they want to generate high levels of potential benefit in terms of patronage value in order to be able to invest in it. And the time savings is not there. So since it's a dominating benefit, it's not looking as good because the productivity gain is either not measured, poorly measured. So the point here is, if there are new benefits that are creeping into the system, we must measure them and then put the old ones next to it where they have changed their relative role. You said it's not looking as good. It's not looking as good under the old way we measure it. Exactly. Whereas the new way might change. But it might not change at all for the good either. I was in an Uber where the guy said the shortest trip he ever did was 600 metres by a young person mm -hmm. who also wanted their bottle of water to be given to them as well. The point about it is there may be unintended consequences and we need to be thinking broadly enough and have models broadly enough that may help us try to understand that. Absolutely right. If I could just give you an extreme example. Just imagine in the future where we have autonomous cars, but we still own them. In other words, we use our car, it will drive us to work, say, and then it'll drop us off. But instead of it parking, as we might have done before, 
it will return home without a passenger. Interesting question as an aside, what's the value of travel time savings with nobody in the vehicle? It will stay in your garage during the day, and then it will drive back empty to pick you up to bring you home. So in other words, two trips will become four, worse congestion. But it may not be like that because during the day, if you so wish, you could make your car available to others at a price to take them around, (laughs) and you can generate some income from your car, and it's actually um, taking maybe someone else's car off the road, or it may be taking people out of public transport, which is not a good thing. The interesting question, now, if you no longer own that vehicle and it's part of a pool, you will still have two trips instead of four because that vehicle will still take you to work and then it'll go on and do something else and then it'll pick you up and take you home so it doesn't need to go back to your house. This has other long-term implications. Once you don't own vehicles, maybe you don't need a garage anymore. So maybe houses could be less expensive or you could rent your garage out. I call it Air G, like Airbnb, and make money out of it, as they're doing in London right now. People are selling their cars, renting their garages for sometimes £60,000 a year, making a lot of money. This is the new future in terms of what role will the car play as it becomes part of a sharing model, and especially as it becomes autonomous. I like the idea of understanding those where those dimensions might happen. I'm trying to see is there a process to make sure that we're judging it well. For example... 30% of trips in some cities are circulating traffic. Mm. Uh, if you could remove that, that would do much more than coordinating the traffic lights. If we understand the problem, we might understand how we have to push to the solution. And I'm hoping the models will give us that idea of what that will mean. Because quite often people now say, oh, I won't need parking in the city. Might that ultimately lead to it's better to stay in your car than to go to your office, which has you know, limitations. Yep. So the generation of activity may be much different, but it won't necessarily always be better. A lot of transportation researchers like, like our group, Hmm. are busily working to develop new modelling that can actually test different assumptions surrounded by the issues we've just been talking about. Hmm. And some of it is simulation work. Some of it is what I would call more behavioural and integrating it into the conventional models. So MetroScan, for example, will in time, but we've started the process, will in time uh, build in autonomous cars as different to driving cars. And we'll also have a mobility as a service, which is a multimodal packaging model, like a telco subscription, which will compete with public transport. So instead of having, say, an Opal card, what's called your pay-as-you-go fare, you will just access public transport through an app, which is multimodal. The question is, how many people will want to take up these new ways of purchasing travel? How many would want to stay with the old model with or without autonomous cars? Interesting question, but we need models and methods to understand how people would respond when these are offered in the market. And at the end of the day, one of the fundamentally important factors which we're still trying to get our head around is how much will you have to pay to purchase a multimodal subscription which will give you access to so many Uber trips, so many bus trips, so many electric bike trips, etc. And to what extent do you want the Uber vehicle to come immediately or within the hour, different price, etc, etc, etc. And so these are the big challenging questions and the techos that are big on all these new digital disruption ideas that they think the market's going to be so different and almost a revolutionary change in 30 years, 
apart from the fact I don't think that will happen to that extent. Nevertheless, we need to say under what conditions might we expect a fairly significant change in the patterns of travel, which has, and what impact will that have on the performance of our road network, the performance of our buses? Will it improve crowding? Will it improve reliability? Will it improve congestion? Mm. We don't know. We're asking the questions and we had developing methods to understand and then hopefully test that. And it's not just a case of building infrastructure, it's a case of policy and operational systems as well, which often are judged in a very one-dimensional sense. I can afford to pay, say, for something, therefore I assume that's going to be the dominant factor, whereas you might say, well, hang on, we've got to measure how people will A, react to it, and B, how can they react to it, be it finance, be it a range of things. Absolutely right. And in fact, the um, it's central to that is what we call the governance framework. In other words, what role in the future will government play, in our case, Transport for New South Wales and Department of Planning, and what role will the market play in delivering all these new ex- so-called exciting options in multimodality? We don't really know at this stage. There are a number of schools of thought. One is let the market decide, give it a go, make a loss or what? Government may say no. If you're using government assets, we want to have some say in how what impact this might have on future public transport. So I think government has an, a hugely important role. But may I suggest that it should get out of the way of encouraging organisations to give it a go and test different models in the market, but maybe even support them. For example, it may be that government could invest in some of these particular um, new ways in which people will purchase through an app a subscription to access different modes of transport, of which some of them are owned by the government at the moment, like the buses and the trains. Hmm. Very exciting. The question is where government will show interest is, at the end of the day, does this actually improve the performance of the network? Does this provide customers with a better choice? And what does it mean to the subsidy. They're the questions. Well, the subsidy is a, a huge issue that doesn't, to my mind, seem to get incorporated as often as it might do. If there's a long infinite to subsidise a system, yes. you know, that, that becomes very good. Because we often become, and you've talked about, uh, the model that doesn't rush towards the mode choice. It comes back first and foremost and looks at the need. We have been supply side oriented. The answer's a train, what's the question? We have been rather than demand side. And so we haven't had an understanding in the debate as we talk about these things about what will be the real factors in it. Mode is not a choice at the very beginning, is it? It shouldn't be, but sadly it is. And if I could give an example of a study we did relating to the Northern Beaches, you may be aware that uh, we now have a B-line bus. It's the only part of Sydney where they actually did consider bus instead of rail. We're very rail-centric in Sydney at the moment. I don't want to be too critical because it's good to see lots happening. But if I can just talk an example of what's happening in the Northern Beaches, which has really taught me a lesson about how we evaluate priorities here. They looked at three different bus solutions, ranging from um, the, what we've ended up with, which is essentially a standard double-decker bus with fancy bus stops and some, some amount of, of corridor dedicated to buses, but there's a lot of sharing along the way as well, versus a much more serious what's called bus rapid transit, which is a totally dedicated corridor the whole way with, it, with the lookalike stations and so on. But then versus light rail. So I said to myself, well, why don't we do an interesting comparison here of light rail and different models of bus rapid transit? Out of interest, we can do it quickly because we've got Metroscan. So we did that, and it was interesting. The patronage forecasts on the bus system were higher than the light rail in the northern beaches, 
because it had a better coverage capability. But light rail won out when it came to going to the, to the lower North Shore where this BRT would have also connected into, simply because there's a lot of people would want to catch the bus going into the city and then connect into the light rail. But if we had a light rail going the whole way through the northern beaches into the city with no transfer penalty, people would jump on the light rail, mainly in the lower North Shore, because many of those people actually work in the southern end of the city into the eastern suburbs. And so that's really important, whereas the poor old bus people would have to transfer because the bus didn't go into the city, and the transfer penalty in a benefit cost is very high. So it turned out the light rail had a benefit, better benefit cost ratio. But then I said to myself, we've asked the wrong question. Why don't we start off with how much money have we got to spend? Mm. And so why didn't I take the light rail spend and say, how much light rail could I get? Well, I know because we've just done that. But how much bus spend could I get? Because the bus is a lot less expensive on a dedicated corridor as well. And it turned out that when I did that calculation by taking a fixed budget, and I chose the light rail as a budget point, for example, I could get three times the amount of service on the bus network, a wider catchment area, more people than the light rail for the same dollar, which meant that its benefit cost ratio when I related the costs to the budget of light rail was three times higher than light rail. Mm. So the question is, if you generalize that to wherever we do benefit cost, why don't we from now on start off with how much money have we got to spend and where's the best place to spend it rather than here's three projects, here's a corridor, let us evaluate them. The light rail system in Sydney goes a fairly short distance. Might a better solution be to convert that back to busways? Well, that's a whole... Sorry, st- yeah, yeah, I, I, I'm not asking you to answer that. Well, but- no, I'm happy to comment. I mean, just putting aside the debacle at the moment with finishing it in the mm. city, but I've never been a great fan of the light rail system. I would have preferred to have actually done exactly what they've done with George Street in terms of closing it to cars and a very high service capacity bus system down there. Service capacity, not vehicle capacity, is what delivers service. And that could then go way out into the eastern suburbs. As long as you're willing to close roads, it shouldn't matter what you put on it. It seems to me, though, that government says we can only close roads for rail, but we can't close it for buses. It's nonsense. That's a lovely point. But it's also my point is not to evaluate that totally now, but to have an opportunity, an environment where we might consider that. We are too narrow, too fundamentalist in what we're doing. And so that option would be deemed to be heresy. I spoke at a conference in Melbourne where they talked about trams where they were looking at other alternatives which weren't steel wheels on steel rail. And I said, that is visionary, that is progressive, and in Melbourne, that's heresy. (laughs) I've um, coined a few phrases over the years related to this whole debate about rail versus bus. One was um, choice versus blind commitment. And the other one was emotional ideology. And it is a fact that there is a general sense that buses are boring and trains are sexy. And it's a real hard one to try and get away from. And so there is this huge modal bias rather than saying, what is the best way to deliver the best service? And then let's see if it's called a bus or called a train. Instead of saying, we would like a train solution. And so let's find out how we can justify it. That's Mm. the way we think. Mm. That's unfortunate and sad. It's the... Thomas the Tank Engine principle of land use transport planning. You love your train. And technology in the future will make the bus better. 
if it's autonomous, it might be driven better in many instances. If it's got a control on it, it won't take corners as fast because it knows that there and it can be controlled to do that. And, of course, it can run like a train with the future, not physically linked but electronically linked, and so it can operate like a train of many characters. Absolutely. It has the maximum flexibility. It can platoon down George Street as a lot of pods, as you might want to call them, each carrying up to 16 people, and then at different points along the route, it can then parts can veer off to where people wish to go. So instead of having to get on a tram where it only goes from A to B, and if you want to go to C, you've got to get off, you can get on a platoon of autonomous buses and you can choose the particular pod, which is the one that's now going to turn left to go to C or the one that's going to turn right to go to D. That's been known since years. The Stinsons even said that years ago. The point is buses have much more flexibility to do that than light rail. You don't have to dig up the road either. The cost of doing it is is much lower, and I believe in the future, not only will we be able to do that very cost-effectively, we're going to have sexy-looking buses that will look like trains and will act like trains but will smell like roses. And the fact of the matter is you could build two systems for the price that you could build a rail system for in many instances. Not every, I'm not, I'm not trying to overgeneralise it, but your point about your modelling mm. is that you can model that strategy rather than just model that project. Absolutely. That's what it is. In fact, we did an exercise, for example, if we did not build the Northwest Rail, which is, well, I think, say, let's say 13 billion and we spent that equivalent money on buying buses, and we're not even putting them on dedicated roads at the moment, just buy buses, we could actually quadruple the amount of buses on the road network and increase jobs like you wouldn't believe it. We can bring the buses in from China, which are manufactured under license from BMW and all those people in Europe, so they're not dodgy buses anymore. You can get them here in two weeks' time, and you put them on the road, and the frequency of service will be such that you will get at least 6 to 10% of people out of their cars. Now, some people have criticised me and said, well, if you put more buses on the road, Hensher, what about all the congestion out of control? I said, well, if you can't get 10% of people out of the cars by quadrupling the, the connectivity of public transport through improved service, you've got no chance of getting them out of their cars by building one railway along one corridor. My old professor, Prof Blunden, who was a passionate public transport person, did not support the Eastern Suburbs Railway mm. because it would take the budget for the next 25 years. He wanted trams. Mm. I guess I don't want to argue the finality of that. I want to talk about the possibility of evaluating that and understanding it in the broader context, which I think is what your model is yes, aiming for. I, I want the decision-making process to have a wider set of evaluated options to consider when they finally make a decision rather than we had already decided in advance that it's got to be a light rail. We're going to evaluate a couple of options on light rail and we, but with the decisions made. Mm. This is the sad thing about a lot of this work. It's not there to inform the decision. It's there to justify the decision mm. that's been made. And it misses the opportunity to look at other possibilities that might be much better value for money an example I have, we complain about housing affordability in Sydney. We can solve a lot of that by better accessibility through better investment in transport. How do we do it? Very simple. Reprioritise fast rail between Wollongong, Sydney and Newcastle 
Fast mean Newcastle to Sydney one hour, one hour, which is achievable. Even on the current track with tilt trains, you could get close to it, right? Then people would start to think, oh, I can live up there. Organizations, many of the big consultancy firms have said to me, they might open a second office in in Newcastle because it's far enough away to justify it. But we ain't going to open a second office in Parramatta because it's too close to CBD of Sydney. And people like living along the beaches, as you said, David. Lifestyle is important. Create good access to suburbs along the beaches that are accessible within an hour at the maximum. 30-minute cities is pie in the sky for the time being. You will get people living in Wollongong, living in Newcastle far more than today, and accessing jobs back into Sydney if necessary. But in time, many of them will relocate their jobs to those areas. To me, that's a win-win, and that'll make housing more affordable, which is an important byproduct of an improvement in our transport network. And autonomous buses going through suburbs, and that could potentially give the accessibility to the suburbs much a different approach. Again, I'm not going to argue how much. I look to thorough research to help me understand whether that's a good point or not a good point. Let's talk a little bit more about the Manly Warringah. Just briefly, for those who don't know, it's a, an area in the northeast corner of Sydney, and it's quite big. It's 254 square kilometres, 270,000 people. It has three roads going into it and a ferry service. You talk about the link to the CBD. A lot of people in the area don't want to overplay that because it means more people, mm. and they're, they're worried about it. So there's a dimension there that's nothing to do with just measuring how many people are on buses other than the negative impacts, I'm oh, saying. absolutely. I mean, when we did a study years ago on the um, using the, an earlier version of Metroscan, actually, which we called Tresis, whereby we were interested in seeing, and this was a, a study done by, for the then local member called Tony Abbott, who got money out of his friend, Deputy Prime Minister Anderson, to do a benefit cost analysis and forecasting. And we looked at scenarios on the Spit Bridge, which include an extra lane, a tunnel, a bus-only lane, a few things like that. And at the end of the day, we did actually find that there was enormous value in just putting an extra lane on it. The tunnelling was too expensive, a lot of geological problems. But the local residents are up in arms because they want to get out, but they don't want people coming in. (laughs) It's a fascinating story about we're special, help us, but don't attract the riffraff. The other issue too is it's not just a north-south movement, the east-west movement to other areas as well. And of course, there's a big hospital coming in there, as well as if you put a system in, what might you be able to do to local areas like Mossman? I'm not going to get into detail other than that service isn't just to perform the service of people going to it, it's to put them in their proper place and allow local shops and other things to develop yeah. without heavy congestion around it. Well, that's a very important point of maintaining a village atmosphere in some areas. And the trouble is Cremorne and, for example, suffers because it's one of the worst roads in the peak. We start to ask questions when we can't solve the problem in that corridor. That maybe in terms of accessing the northern beaches, we should focus on further north through Monaval Road, which is the road, if, you, if people are not familiar, that connects down to the major rail line, the North Shore around Pimble. And it's been suggested that if we could have an improved public transport connection 
from the major suburbs on the northern beaches like DY, Mona Vale, where a lot of people live, directly to fast bus necessarily mm. to Pimble and then get onto the train network. That might be a better proposition than having to come down through Military Road, through the city that way, which is chaotic to say the least. Mm. It's a complex issue. We have looked at building a tunnel and actually having the cars go through a tunnel the whole way along Military Road that's tolled. But the problem there is access, uh, all the ramps you're going to require to get in and out of the tunnel because there's too many exit and entry points required. That's a bit of an issue. And then allow the surface to be pedestrian and bus and beautiful village atmosphere in terms of the way we bring back the amenities of the location without putting up with the pollution of vehicles. If you get into the fundamentalist debate that's always build the railway and do it underground and make it fast and what have you, yet you might be saying, look, just put the cars in that place and leave the up space for better public transport and accessibility. And this comes back to the notion of smart places, Mm. is trying to remove the big culprit so that you don't actually see it. And although, you know, there are some concerns about smokestacks and all that sort of thing, we're getting better at that. Mm. It's a real challenge. The alternative is we have less ramp entry points and exit points, which means you would, you'd have to travel further north to go south. But maybe it's doable. The advantage of the methodologies that we've been developing through MetroScan, we can evaluate these options because we're talking about changing the capacity available in different modes of transportation and seeing what that might mean to changing demand. In addition, tunnelling a toll road where we'd be looking at if it's got to be private sector because I don't think the government's interested in building a tunnel there. What might that mean in terms of given the cost, the cost benefit? Mm. The important question is, David, is that when someone says, I wonder what it might look like if we did it, we could then say, well, give me a day. I can give you a bit of an idea. Might that also then spill over into public interaction? I've been to many a public meeting for information, which tends to be a presentation on what the government has already decided. Yes. One government official once described it as, we have an approach of decide and defend. We decide, and then the whole public consultation is about defending that. Yes. Whereas... Sometimes they're open-ended, but they're open-ended in the wrong way. What would you like? Oh, I'd love a train. All right. No one asks, well, how would you use it? What would you pay for it? And what can't we afford to pay if you do that? Your point earlier, here's some money. What would you like to do? If you do it there, your system might well be able to say, well, let's have a meeting and propose three things. I'll come back and tell you what it means. Yes. The important thing about the way we evaluate these is that you're evaluating them on the, the full population that live in the area. And although you may wish to share that with a community, which may be a community group that's got a lobbying interest, they need to understand what the community at large would respect as a possible outcome. Because there's no doubt about it that a lot of these town hall meetings, and for want of a better word, are very much government against a narrowly focused group that has a vested interest rather than the community at large. So the word community meeting is a bit of a misnomer in my view. Having been brought up in economics and planning and behavioralism, a good community is one that has some degree of representation across all segments, not just those who are able to 
go to a meeting, speak loud, be articulate, and win a few points. Dominant. What about the silent minority? Mm. Dominant. The majority, I should say. Mm. Yeah. And so nothing wrong with that process, but we need to put it in the context. And to have that as supplementary evidence from an independent source like a university to say, well, this is the position. And the beauty of our work, we can disaggregate down the results to different groups of people like the low income, the high income. We want to know whether some of these projects will benefit those who are more socially excluded than others, for example. We know, for example, from work we did in using MetroScan in Melbourne, is that adding an additional bus service per hour in the outer suburbs has far more benefit in terms of improved access per dollar than doing the same in the, in the middle suburbs or the inner suburbs. It's about three times the value per trip because they're the people who have poor access. They are often the people on lower incomes, often the people that have trouble accessing wherever. And they're the ones that you could argue need more support through public transport. So you can drill down by location, by sociodemographics, by lifestyle, whatever you want, and identify who are likely to be the beneficiaries and who are likely to be the losers. And then it's a judgment game on politicians. It's not my role as an, as an analyst to decide on what weight I put on the losers and the, and the gainers, mm. but I need to identify them. And if the politician thinks the losers are worth more than the gainers, based on my analysis, that's right. That's why they got voted in. But also, you can vote on that. Mm. It's a way of us being accountable, us, be it the public, be it those who shout loudly about a thing, be it politicians, yes. accountable to say, well, that's all right. I understand your leap of faith in saying this is going to do that. Budgets have just come out with the expression, this will be a congestion buster. And that in itself is highly questionable yes. and certainly not the parameter under which to judge that project. Well, sadly, and I've said this many times, it's one of my other favourite expressions, is that despite the fact that we've got this Northwest Rail being built, we've got the Metro West being built, we've got West Connects being built, most of these projects are only going to buy us two or three years of growth. In other words, without reform on pricing and all that, we're going to be back where we started in about four years after these projects are open. That's real sad. The Northwest Rail Project is not going to do much to change the amount of traffic on the road network because it's going to grow even faster for a lot of other reasons. And the railway is not going to keep pace. We need some serious pricing model to recognize that people who are using their cars in the peak are not paying for the benefits they're getting. I don't want to call it congestion charging because that's a terrible emotional language. I want to reform the entire pricing model to try and spread the peak. And to, just to finish off, I'm going to suggest that the model that works, and nobody will be financially worse off, is to halve the registration fee or do away with it and have five cents per kilometre in the peak. You'll get 6% out of the peak. There'll be acceptable congestion. And we know that over 30% of people living in Sydney have enough flexibility in when they travel if the price is right. There's a possibility there of understanding what it means to me. because you used congestion pricing, it has a bogey sort of feeling about it. Whereas if you start saying, well, this is what it would cost you, and maybe even there's a, an app that can, I can play with a bit, because what they're doing in America, they're introducing that sort of system on a volunteer basis, which is not our image of what it's going to be like. Our image is it's going to be another tax. Yeah, the trouble with volunteering, David, is you need a lot of people to show a change in behaviour that impacts on congestion on the road network. It's very hard if you just have a small group of people and that's a real problem. My app would do the following, and I've done this with people, although we didn't design an app. Take your current travel by car, 
say, typical average is 12,000 kilometers a year in a private car. How many of those kilometers are in the peak? We know that less than 4,000 of most people, most of it's in the off-peak weekends, evenings, and so on. Take that bit and multiply that by five cents. If it's 4,000 kilometers, that's $200. If I knock $300 off your registration charge, you're better off. And I need to show the example because people don't believe me. They said, five cents a kilometer, that's terrible in the peak. You're ripping me off. I said, well, let's do the calculation, my friend. Wow, I'm actually making money or I'm not worse off. And the good news about that model, depending on how you optimize the adjustment in the registration, treasury is no worse off. That's a big sell. And what we get is a reduction in travel during the peak, which is equivalent to school holidays. And when I say that, people say, wow, school holidays? That's great. Whenever I travel in school holidays, there's no congestion. There is, but it's acceptable. That's called buy-in. And that is an important issue. And we've been able to study what is the charge per kilometer, what is the registration adjustment in terms of what does it do to the amount of traffic on the road. And given the elasticity of demand for cost, we know that roughly 6% of people in the peak will switch. And importantly, as I've said before, more than 30% of people in Sydney will switch are able to switch out of the peak if the price is right. Do you know that something like 50% of all trips in the peak in Sydney are not going to work? Mm. They're doing other things. Yes. David, in conclusion, I love that. Can I say thank you? Because I think we're moving towards having a, it sounds hackneyed, a more informed debate, but a more real debate on what's happening. And we're using modelling and and other factors involved in there, not just travel times and so on, but real personable factors involved in there so that it becomes a decision that we're involved in more than we're told about. And it comes where we understand its consequences far more. Absolutely agree with you, David. I'm, I'm hoping as time goes by that the tools that we are developing can also be communicated effectively to the community at large so they appreciate the value of what we're doing. David, thank you very much for your time. Pleasure. Our chat with Professor Henscher raises many issues. In future podcasts, we will address subjects such as if a road user charge is such a good idea, how do we make it palatable? Digging down into a wider range of social data to incorporate in our planning seems like a good idea, so we will look at recent developments such as a new lab for planning future cities. What does better operational approaches to public transport really look like? And Manly Warringah, the first specific B-line in Sydney, is it working? Are we there yet? Transport into the Future is produced by Driven Media. You can send comments or suggestions to feedback at drivenmedia.com.au.